Thank you for joining us for this Vetfolio podcast entitled The Wisest, Safest Use of NSAIDs, What the Evidence Tells Us, brought to you in part through the support of Elanco Companion Animal Health. During this session, we'll explore a number of excellent systematic reviews of NSAID in veterinary medicine. This podcast will describe a rational approach to minimizing the likelihood and or severity of NSAID-induced adverse drug effects. We're pleased to bring you today Dr. Mark Epstein, a board-certified diplomat of the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners and senior partner and medical director for Total Bond Veterinary Hospitals, a group of five AHA-accredited primary care hospitals in North Carolina. And now Vetfolio is proud to present Dr. Epstein. Welcome to a podcast about the highest, safest, and wisest use of non-steroidals. We've already stipulated, and I know that you already know, that NSAIDs are the fastest, most predictable way to improve a patient with osteoarthritis. Dogs, for sure, probably with cats as well. And yet, it has a fairly established adverse effect profile. So we talked about what those were. What I really want to focus on here are those specific steps where you can take a drug class that's already been determined to be effective and safe and to take what is a relatively small risk of a problem and reduce it down to as close to zero as it can possibly get, especially with regards to serious problems. Just remember that we have the spectrum of COX selectivity, and different nonsteroidals will have different COX-1 sparing and COX-2 selective effects. And I say that only to the extent that while it is true that COX-2 selective nonsteroidals have a track record of probably causing fewer GI lesions, when given to humans as well as dogs. It is also true that it does take an inhibition of both to create serious problems. And if a patient already has a GI lesion of some kind, then the more COX-2 selective nonsteroidals may cause a worsening of the problem. So I know that sounds a little paradoxical, but it requires suppression of both COX-1 and COX-2 to have some of the more serious adverse events. At the end of the day, when we choose a nonsteroidal, you don't have as much control over what happens as you think, except when it comes to appropriate use, because the COX expression changes in a patient uh, depending on the tissue that's affected, how long it's affected, why it's effective, the intensity of how badly it's affected, and, of course, there's always just gene expression from patient to patient to patient. When we use a nonsteroidal, we are really only able to direct two things, which ones we're doing which one we pick, and the dose. And then it follows that we use it correctly and safely. And that's what we're going to focus on here. All non-steroidals are non-selective at higher doses. So if we go up and up and up on doses, we're almost certainly going to find ourselves in trouble. So dosing appropriately is a chief method of avoiding a problem. But let's go ahead and start from the beginning. And before a non-steroidal is dispensed, this is like number one. Number one, and it involves the staff, the question is to the owner, what other medications or supplements are you giving your pet? And then they have to ask, how about aspirin? How about any steroids, prednisone, cortisone? Because you know how it goes, right? You know how it goes. Any, are you giving any medicine to your pet? No. Well, no. Well, how about, like, aspirin? Well, I am giving aspirin because the, 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 the connection is not always there. And we must ask about over-the-counter supplements. And the reason is because some over-the-counter supplements 
have things in it we do not want to give with non-steroidals. And just a classic example is going to be aspirin. A lot of over-the-counter supplements have sodium salicylate mixed in with it. That's why the dogs get better, not maybe because of the glucosamine chondroitin, but because of the aspirin. So we have to ask the question. I will tell you in our practice, we have recently transformed over to, instead of just asking that question, we are getting into the habit of basically telling clients, just bring your meds and your supplements. Put them in a bag, bring them here, we'll figure it out. So they don't have to try to remember or forget. So it starts off with that question, what are you giving your pet and what is the supplements that are getting and drugs? Number one is that we're going to ask the right questions for your medication history or just look at the medication history and supplement history, non-steroidals, aspirin, Motrim, Advil, steroids, prednisone, cortisone, nutritional supplements, herbs, anything at all, and see what might interact with non-steroidals. This is all before the veterinary drug is prescribed. Why is aspirin such a potentially bad guy? Well, I'll tell you. It's a unique non-steroidal. It's, number one, it has a feature that our veterinary non-steroidals do not, or actually no other non-steroidals do. All non-steroidals that you're used to dealing with on human and veterinary, with the exception of aspirin, are reversible. You quit grabbing the drug, and the effects on the cyclooxygenase enzyme goes away. Not with aspirin. It has that reversible effect, but it has an irreversible effect as well. And so... Essentially, all the cells in the body that get affected by that have to wash out or have to turn over. It's not that the drug hangs around that long, but it can be there, the effect on those cells can be there for a week or more. Aspirin also creates a compound called aspirin induced or triggered lipoxins. These are actually a little cytoprotective, and yet they are COX 2 mediated. And if you give a COX 2 selective drug at the same time as aspirin, you're going to strip away that cytoprotection. So every little bit of protection that the patient might have had has been stripped away by combining aspirin with a standard non-steroidal. So aspirin is kind of like in our practice, it's like Voldemort. You know, it's a name we don't mention. We don't want anybody getting the idea that can give this particular drug dogs so that we don't make a mistake when we prescribe a non-steroidal. Uh, prednisone, cortisone, bad guy because you're dropping a bomb on this patient. The corticosteroids inhibit way up on the phospholipid pathway and then you're giving nonsteroidals, which operate way down that phospholipid pathway. And so, again, you're stripping away every bit of cytoprotection that patient may have. So combining nonsteroidals and steroids is, is a recipe for a problem. And then supplements, I mentioned supplements often have things in it we don't want, but chiefly among them will be aspirin. And then there are other supplements which have a cyclooxygenase inhibiting activity. And so if you give your veterinary nonsteroidal on top of those, even if they manufacturers say it's okay, it's not something I want to do to maximize safety. So that's number one, right questions versus medication history. If you do have another non-steroidal on board, the standard washout recommendations you probably have heard is five half-lives, which might be up to five days. Frankly, that's a little bit embedded mythology. Carprofen, ferrocoxib, and daracoxib, the half-life of those drugs is like five, five, six hours. So five half-lives of those drugs is like a day. So I'm not saying be cavalier, but you can be pretty confident about switching from one veterinary non-steroidal to another within just a couple of days, and yet don't do that if you've had problems with one non-steroidal. That one you want to not do anything until you have really settled that GI tract. The exceptions are meloxicam, which has a very long half-life, like 15 hours or more, and aspirin for the reasons I mentioned, because all those cells have to turn over that were affected by the aspirin. Now, there are some other medications to be thinking about, not just other COX-inhibiting agents. Remember, we talked about that non-steroidals are 
highly, highly protein-bound. There are other drugs you give all the time that are highly protein-bound. I'll give you some examples. Phenobarbital, cyclosporin, amitriptyline, tifovicin, the long-term injectable antibiotic. These are all highly protein-bound compounds. Now, I'm not saying that it's a particular problem to give those in combination. I'll put it this way. If I have a dog that is epileptic and on phenobarbital and is atopic and so is on cyclosporin and then just got a pyoderma, so now I gave the cefofecin injection and now it's limping and i got to think about a non-steroidal, well, I'm telling you, it gives me a little bit of pause to put another highly protein-pound drug on top of that. So just be aware and cautious when you start getting multiple highly protein-bound drugs on top of each other. And then lastly, there's furosemide and ACE inhibitors. Furosemide and ACE inhibitors, pretty predictably, especially furosemide along with non-steroidals, will drop glomerular filtration rates, can do some real harm to the kidneys. ACE inhibitors have that possibility as well for different reasons. And ACE inhibitors, because they work through prostaglandin-mediated pathways, you're kind of working against the non-steroidal and vice versa using those two together. So caution with ACE inhibitors, but fairly contraindicated along with furosemide. So that's number one, medication histories. Don't mix and match wrongly. Number two, patient selection. Obviously, you want them to be able to tolerate these drugs. This is where your labs come in, your physical exam comes in, making sure they are not in a low-flow state, nor do they get in a low-flow state. Why? Because in a low-flow state, the kidneys upregulate a cytoprotective mechanism in its tubules. How does it do that? Through COX-2, because it causes prostaglandin E2 to give you a little vasodilation. And if you give nonsteroidals in a low-flow state, you're, again, stripping the protection away that the body has to protect its own tubules, and you will get nephrotoxicity. So we have to avoid nonsteroidals in known low-flow states. No dehydration, no shock, no hypovolemia, hypotension, congestive heart failure, any of that. When it comes to your labs, liver enzymes, elevated ALP and ALT are not necessarily a contraindication for nonsteroidals because nonsteroidals don't cause a hepatic toxicity. It's a reaction of that dog to that drug. Now, you may want to monitor your enzymes more carefully, but it's not a contraindication for them. And then we talked about dosing a lean body weight insofar as possible. And then if we're undergoing anesthesia, IV fluids, blood pressure monitoring. You know, this is 2016, so I think it's time to be doing that. And doing those three things, medication histories, not mixing and matching, your patient selection based on physical exam, history, and labs, dosing a lean body weight, and then if they're undergoing anesthesia, IV fluids, and blood pressure monitoring. On the back end, after a patient is going to now go home with non-steroidals, what are you going to do? Well, number one, you're going to make sure that the owners understand what to watch for, what to look for, and when to discontinue these drugs. In dogs, the number one adverse effect clinically is vomiting, followed by diarrhea, then inappetence or diminished appetite, which means the dog could do well and just not finish breakfast so much or be eager about it. That's enough to stop the drug. Could be doing well, eating fine, but then spitting up once, stop the drug. You know, it may not be due to the nonsteroidal. You don't know. But if it is due to the nonsteroidal and you keep giving the nonsteroidal, this is where you go from a minor problem up to something catastrophic like a perforation. So until you figure it out or maybe try gastroprotectants, stop the drug at the first sign of a problem. Cats is kind of the opposite, it seems. Their main adverse effect is going to look like a diminished appetite. So that would be a reason to stop a non with them. This has to be communicated verbally to owners and in writing. common way to do that these days is just to have your software programmed to print out like a little paragraph that basically explains to owners what to watch for. And, of course, all the companies that have veterinary non 
are going to have strip-off sheets and something, client education material that you can and should give. Uh, lastly, when it comes to medications, if you're going to use them, the gastroprotectants, there's sucralfate, of course, and then there's misoprostol, which basically is prostaglandin E2, so you're kind of giving back to the patient what the nonsteroidal is taking away. And then when it comes to diminishing the acid production, the H2 antagonists work faster, but the proton pump inhibitors work better. So oftentimes, if it's a really acute case, you'll use both at the same time and go from an H2 antagonist like ranitidine, add in the omeprazole, and then transition strictly over to the omeprazole. In terms of monitoring, the conventional wisdom is to try to get your labs ahead of time and to monitor periodically. I will tell you that there's a set of patients that we have to really give consideration to that if they are really healthy, doing well otherwise, we don't necessarily not refill the prescription if they won't come in for a repeat set of labs, but once or twice a year, perhaps. But if there's a risk factor to that dog, either an existing one or a new one, well, then we will not refill the nonsteroidals until we have checked those labs again. So that's a clinical judgment call, generally speaking, done after three weeks, four weeks of starting a nonsteroidal, and then roughly every six months thereafter, unless there is a new risk factor that has developed, and that means bring them in more often according to your clinical judgment. All the standard blood tests are done, and there are guidelines that suggest that in addition for cats, blood pressure should be undertaken. Okay, this podcast has covered the basic steps at um, minimizing the likelihood and severity of nonsteroidal adverse events. If you follow these steps, you should not have many problems, and if you see one, you should be able to address it very quickly. I appreciate your tuning in to the podcast. Thank you. We hope that you've enjoyed Dr. Epstein's remarks today. If you have not already joined us for Dr. Epstein's in-depth web conference entitled Rethink Osteoarthritis, an Evidence-Based Approach, please visit us online at vetfolio.com for details on his lecture or to access any of our past web conferences. On behalf of Vetfolio and Alonco Companion Animal Health, thank you for participating in this podcast.